Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. I'm Pete. Um, we're going to have a big show today. At first, we're going to talk to some um, pre-record of um, some anarchist um, Black Cross members um, in Indonesia and uh, some political prisoners there. Um, then we're going to speak to Lisa about um, letters from the inside um, in Castlemaine. She's from Castlemaine. Um, um, that's Victoria. Uh, Victorian Central Central in Central Victoria, sorry. Oh, and welcome to the Doing Time Show. Um, we are just going to talk to some um, anarchist Black Cross members in Indonesia um, about some um, political prisoners in um, that got arrested in May Day in Indonesia. And if you want any more information, you can go to um, Anarchist Black Cross Indonesia. And there's be more information after this interview. Um, hello, um, welcome to the program. Can you tell us what's happening in Indonesia with the political prisoners? Uh, okay, thank you for the interview uh, today. But first, before I explain what actually happened in Indonesia, especially uh, on May Day in Jakarta. Yeah. I will introduce myself. I'm Pereira and I live in Jakarta. So what's happening in what? Uh, I'm from Palang Hitam. There's anarchist black cross in Indonesia. Oh, right. Oh, okay. And what's happening in Jakarta on May Day? There's are there are. 69 people have been arrested by the police. Really? Yeah, and then it's already two, two months. Two months they're still being in jail. All oh, right. Yeah, and actually uh, it's still on process for the investigation, and we still waiting for the final result because it's not... Yeah, we're still waiting for the court proceeding, and then but from the 69 people, there's uh, there only 11 until now. 11 still in prison? Yeah, 11, 11 people. Where is the prison? Where? Yeah. Uh, still in Polda, police right. station. Yes. Police station uh, jail and uh, for waiting the process, investigation process because they still need uh, more more investigation and 
they need another people maybe. Mm. So our commerce, electronic commerce, still in Polda, uh, Yogyakarta. Oh, really? Um. Um. And why? Why only eleven from sixty-nine? Because the eleven people they are in Syria in police. Uh, police the the Syria that they burn the. Um, Police post in Yogyakarta and hot the Molotov. Uh, that's from failure. Police only saw uh, in public failure because everybody can uh, record the May Day. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I can say. And if you need another information, I can give you as I know. Okay. Um. Um. Why were they arrested in on May Day? Yeah, because they burned the police post. Oh right. Ah. Uh-uh, then uh, in Indonesia. Ah. Uh, uh, in Indonesia, when people burn something that. Um, um, I mean, they property, uh, they will think that we are terrorists. <laughs> they don't yeah, know yeah. about uh, another ideology. They only think, oh, you are terrorists. You burn the property of using the Molotov. And so that's why police profitize the um, citizen around the place. And they beat us, uh, punch us, and then arrest us to the Polda, mm. being in jail. Yeah, that's what actually happened in May Day in Yogyakarta. Yeah, right. Can you talk about repression in Indonesia? Uh, yeah, it was so, so bad because in Indonesia, all the... Um, uh, for everybody who do the things like that or the same things that against the um, the state that mm. yeah governments and the police will will give us like a punch and a violence and then give us. Uh, pressure, and then they will not give us the time for talk. Like, oh no, I'm not, I'm not this, I'm not this, and then they only think, oh, you are totally wrong, you are terrorist, and you, you, you burn the, the property. Yeah. yeah, in Indonesia, that's really a bad thing about that, and everybody. Oh no! I mean not everybody, but only like people who in making to the high level of society. Yeah. Uh, think the same way. They know what actually happened in the other part of Jakarta because they believe that what government think and do and want to do in Jakarta, they uh, they they live in government fully. How can you help with these prisoners? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, okay, okay. Uh, can you repeat? How can you oh, help? Sorry. Can you help with these? I mean, how can you help with the political prisoners? Oh, uh, what what we do for help the comrades? Or? Yes, yes, yeah. 
Uh, we got, we already got the the uh, the Asokat and from the LBH of Jakarta, like Lego Eight, and they will accompany our friends, our co- the commerce in in the process, and then we give lots of information to the. Uh, like we need coloration from outside, from outside, uh, like Jakarta, Surabaya, or another island, yeah. and another country maybe, like in, like this, what we do like, uh, in Aussie, yeah, we need coloration. So this information will be uh, up even more for the a lot of people will know this information because because this is not only about we burn the police post, but why we burn the police post? A lot of people will, uh, don't care about the the reason why we burn the police post. We only see that we burn the police post because yeah. they don't care. Uh, what actually happened in uh, Yogyakarta, new new airport, uh, have you ever here? Mm. Yeah. New Yogyakarta International Airport. Yeah. Yeah. That's a village, one of a very beautiful village in Yogyakarta. And... There are so many people in there work as a farmer and don't want to kill. They lend to the government to burn, uh, to, to build the new airport, but government and police don't care about they, about what they want and yeah. they only want the land. And yeah, that's what happened until now. Yep. So we, we, so, well, we are really, really angry for that. Mm, but, don't blame me. Yeah. So, uh, there, this, oh, sorry? Oh, how can we help from here, like, um, to show solidarity with um, the prisoners? Uh, you asked me what can you do from outside to help this case? Yes, yes. Uh, maybe to spread the information, we uh, we will give you the the app, the website if you want. Because on the website, we all we always give the update information. Yeah. So. Uh, what is the website? What? What's the website? Oh, palanghitam.noblogs.org or rg. Palanghitam. How do you spell that? Palanghitam, yeah, palang, palanghitam.noblogs.org. And you can... um. Send money to the help the prisoners with um, 
Yeah, because actually all the Congress, the prisoners need money for their daily life, and actually we in Yogyakarta already make the solidarity like open donation of fun uh, sell T-shirts for them. If you yeah, if you want to help shop the uh, give the money. Maybe you can give donation or buy buy the t-shirt and yeah, that's really helpful, I think. And is that the um, because, on the website? Yeah, you can find the yeah you can find the website and on the website we already put the merchandise for Thank you for the interview, it's very good. Um, I will repeat the um, the website soon on on the recording of this. Uh, thank you and I'll see speak to you soon. See, We'll get some updates for, um, in, a, in a couple of weeks. Is that okay? Yeah, okay. Really okay. thank you for it. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, see ya. Okay, see ya. And um, if you want any information about anarchist prisoners, go to um, p-a-l-a-n-g-h-i-t-a-m.noblogs.org or um, a-g-i-t-a-s-i dot noblogs dot org or even free two five dot n o s t a t e dot net and welcome back to the doing time show um we are going to talk to um Lisa soon from letters from in from Letters from the Inside is a spoken word performance of letters written by men and women in central Victorian prisons. The prisons, in prisons, letter writing is still an art, important art form. In Australia, Australian context, the letter allowed Ned Kelly to express the passionately and passionately give voice to his thoughts and feelings while introducing the importance of the letter form. In our colonial history, we will be speaking with Lisa, literary advocate and activist. She will give a report back of some performances that have happened around Casamane. And we have Lisa on the line. How are you, Lisa? I'm great, thank you. That's good. Um, so, welcome to the program. Can you tell us about the spoken word event that happened in Castlemaine? Where yeah, so um, yep. a few days ago, we uh, um, had the Letters from the Inside uh, performance that was performed in Castlemaine. It was performed twice in Castlemaine at the old Castlemaine Jail oh, and yeah. once in Maryborough. Oh, whereabouts in Maryborough? 
It was at the uh, trucks uh, cafe and bar. Oh, cool. Um, what was it like? The performance was great. Um, it was very moving, and uh, I had excellent feedback from uh, the audience. Um, yep. It was yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah. Awesome. Can you talk about um, letter writing in prisons? How important important it is. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, you know, as we we know, there's limited um, limited means of communication um, when you're in prison, and and phone calls uh, are costly. Yes. And um, you know, you they're, they're, you you have to wait in line, and you also have um, you can only uh, use the phone for a certain amount of time, and in certain times. And then, if you haven't got anyone. Um, for whatever reason, um, visits might be uh, not practical. So, letter writing is, is you know, one one way that um, prisoners can communicate with their friends and families and the and the outside world. So, it's been it's been like that for you know, hundreds of years as a as a, a way for um, a way for people to uh, communicate in a relatively cost effective way. Yeah. So um, Ned Kelly was quite an important figure. Um, can you talk about how his letter writing contributed to colonial history? Yeah, so Ned Kelly um, wrote the Gerildery letter way back in the, uh, I'm trying to think when it was, 18-something 18, 18 or other, 18, <laughs> around time. 1879. Yeah. Um, and... It, it's a really important document, I think, for, for Australians. I mean, he, he dictated his letter to the, another Cali gang member, Joe Byrne. And, mm. you know, as we also know, in, in prisons, um, uh, illiteracy is a, is a problem. And we do know that um, many prisoners are unable to uh, put together a letter and then um, they, they might need help with that. So he dictated his letter to Joe Byrne. And uh-huh. then it was his... It was a long letter. It was something like, uh, you know, it was over 50 pages. It was very, very long. And it's one man's voice. And in it, you know, it's like a, a cross between a, confe- uh, I suppose a, a confession and a manifesto. And, and it's his story. It's his side of the story. Um, and he talks about uh, police persecution of himself and his family. And he gives mm. his, his version of, of the events. So it's... It's a very, like I said, passionate and um, expressive letter. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a tool, isn't it? Like to to get people. Yeah, to and and truth. interestingly, it was it was deemed, you know, they 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 didn't publish it or get it out there until 1930 oh, right. because um, I suppose they didn't want people hearing what he had to say, and they they mm. might have thought it was a bit too inflammatory or or whatever reason. Yeah. Um, so it didn't actually see the light of day with the general public until the, until 1930. Where, where is um, the letter now? Sorry. Well, there's one. I know there's one copy in the State Library because I've, uh-huh. um, I've seen it. Um, I think that's the original. And then there was a copy that was made very, very early on. Um, and I'm not 100% uh, sure sure where that is. So there's only... So there's the original and then there's a copy that was made by, um, by a newspaper... Uh, guy, sort of early on, you know, when the when the letter was written. Oh right, cool. How was how important do you think um, 
literacy in to, for prisoners is? Oh, it's incredibly important. I mean, uh, I think I think there's a link between um, uh, literacy and and uh, incarceration rates. And I always remember going to a talk by a, a Scottish um, woman who was, um, you know, chief of police, and her saying that, you know, show me. Show me how many kids can't read it at eight and I'll show you how many prison cells I'm going to have to build. So yeah, right. I, I think it's a huge thing and I think that um, it's, uh, yeah, obviously it's, it's, people need to be able to communicate adequately and be able to be equipped to deal with the system and if uh, you have trouble reading and writing then it's, everything is going to be made so much, so much harder for you. Yeah, that's true. Um, can you talk a little bit about your own work and your background? Yeah, sure. So I've been working in um, prisons in Victoria for about six years now. Oh, really? I started off cool. doing the Read, Read Along Dads um, program, which um, is I go into prisons, so a couple of male prisons and a, and a, a women's prison, and then the participants uh, choose a book for their children or for their grandchildren or nieces or nephews, and then they read the book uh, out to me and I record it. And oh, then wow. I send out that book and um, the recording to their children so that mm. the kids can hear um, the voice of their parent or their grandparent you know, whenever they want it, so it's on a CD. And they also get a book. So that's a, that's a lovely thing that, uh, that I've been nice. doing for quite a while yeah. now that's been um, administered and funded by the Friends of Castlemaine Library. So yep. all power to a voluntary group who have, who have got <laughs> that up and running. Yeah. And I also run book groups in prison, and um, which has been really, really popular um, book groups. And I've had very happy, happy participants who, who love coming to the book group. And I run shared reading, which is wonderful because it means that uh, people who come along don't need to be able to read or they don't need, you know, for whatever reason, they don't have to... They don't have to read the book because I read them a story or one of the other guys will read them a story and we just talk about the story there and then. Yeah. So it's a, um, the guys find it very helpful as a, as a break from everyday life and, a, and a, you know, as a way to perhaps relax and, and um, also communicate with their peers in a way that they perhaps wouldn't have because they've got something to talk about. They talk about the, you know, they talk about the story and we do poetry too so we... Um, we look at poems and stories, and that's been very effective and, and has been a great program. And then, of course, I do creative writing, and it was because of the creative writing classes that this whole letters project came out because wow. I realised that the, um, the men had a lot to say. They had a lot to say, and it was a way, really, to get their voices out and so, so that they could say it in a structured way, in a letter format. And, um, yes, but it, was, it was a way that their... Uh, that they could clarify their thoughts and feelings, put it on paper, and um, it was, you know, put out in a format so other people can can go and, and listen to it and hopefully um, get something out of it. Sounds pretty amazing. Um, do you have any more questions? Um, anything else you'd like to say, sorry? <laughs> uh, I could come up with a question for you, Peter, if you want. <laughs> no, um, no, other than uh, there's, you know... There's, there's such a lot of great artwork I have seen coming out of prisons and I think that the art in prisons, um, whether that be writing or um, 
or uh, visual arts or plays or singing or whatever is is such an in, I feel it is a, a very important um, part of things and it's I have only ever seen I've only ever seen um, good results and had positive feedback from from the projects that I've been involved with and that other people um, have been involved with so it's you know I think uh, there's there's power in these things and uh, mm. hopefully hopefully the powers that be can see that and um, that you know we're allowed to, to um, continue to to do this kind of work within prisons. Yeah, that's great. Um, getting back to the um, poetry, do you run workshops on poetry there inside? Mm-hmm, yeah, oh, yeah, great. great. Because some of the men, some of the men, um, you know, they've, they've never written a poem before, so they'll they'll come out of my class and they'll say, "Hey, I've written a haiku or you know a sonnet or whatever it is that they've written." And yeah. They'll get on the phone that evening, or, or and say it to their missus, or they'll they'll oh, send yeah. it off in a letter, and and it's it's just really nice to, um, and of course a lot of the men already in there they do write because when they when they get in they do turn to reading and writing, whereas yeah. because you know that's a way to pass the time. But um, yeah, it's the poetry's been quite surprised because sometimes we tackle poems which uh, I, I suppose are quite would be sort of quite tricky and. Yep. Uh, everybody gets into it and everybody has a go dissecting it and, you know, it's, it's not about formal education, it's not about academic attainment, it's about no. uh, just enjoying what's there and listening to, to something there and then and getting something out of it there and then. So, you know, there's no right or wrong way to discuss it. So mm. that's a, I find that a very, um, you know, it, it, it's a very simple but effective way to engage and and a lot of guys you know they've gone on to write um to write longer things and and to write short stories and all the rest of it so you know any anything like that i i think can only be a good thing good form of expression isn't it oh yeah definitely because um uh, because i think you need it i think everybody needs needs it everybody needs to to have a voice so so do um People um, stand up, right, read the list <laughs> to everyone, or they just do it, um, write it personally, and then um, read it to other people. Do you know what I mean? Oh, you, you mean for the project? Yeah, yeah. the pro, um, poetry. So what? Yeah. Uh, it, it, so for the two things were separate. So the letter thing was separate. So people mm. um, wrote letters in uh, in creative writing class. Yeah. And then they submitted the ones that they wanted to be performed. So they were either could be performed or, um, or they were in a booklet. Uh, and with the poetry, yeah, people, if they want to share their work, they can share it in, you know, within the group. Yeah. And, uh, the, the feedback given by the group is always very respectful. And I think, uh, the, the men appreciate the effort that has gone into to writing, you know, and um, yes, they they uh, they've always uh, supported each other in, in, in their writing and, and encouraged each other, which is yeah, really really nice to see. Yeah, it'd be good if you can um, link up with FreeCR and do it at NAIDOC week with um, people there. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's there's lots of um, potential there for this this kind of work, I think. Yeah, fully. Yeah. Um, thanks very much, Lisa. Appreciate it. Um, oh, Peter, there's just one more thing I wanted yep. to say that the um, 
the project was funded by Creative Victoria as part of the Regional Centre for Cultural Programs. So there's right. a whole lot of uh, cultural uh, works going on uh, this year in um, in Central Victoria. And part yep. of that too, there was an exhibition of um, Indigenous artwork, which is on in Castle Lane at the moment. And uh, really? two, wow. the, or the, a couple of um, prisoners' work is represented in that uh, exhibition as well. So. But a good year, good year for the uh, for arts and culture in uh, Central Victoria. Whereabouts are they in Casamayne in the prison, like in the old prison? Uh, no, it's in the uh, the exhibition of of uh, Indigenous work, and um, oh, yeah. so it's um, everyone, uh, lots of different people, um, and that's on in Castlemaine and the Fee uh, Fee Library foyer. Oh, yep, yep, right. Um, so. Um, you got anything else to say, or? <laughs> no, thanks. Uh, thanks. It's been lovely talking to you, and um, yeah, I enjoy listening to the show. And thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, have a good, good day. I'll, we'll, hopefully, we'll talk to you soon about your pro- other projects or something. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Peter. Okay. See ya. Bye. All right. Thanks. Bye. bye. And that was Lisa from um, Letters from the Inside, and we'll just go to. Uh, song now and this song's called um, Prison Plague by Plague I think. and you're with FreeCR 855am or um, www.freecr.org.au um, I'm Peter um, I'm just going to play some um, some um, Commentaries by um, me, Abdul Abu Jamal from um, Prison Radio. Um, the first commentary is called um, um, "For Debbie Africa Freedom" um, by Mamia Abu Jamal, and then the second one is called "Paradox of Liberty Part One." So we might have to play Part Two next week or something. Anyhow, we'll just go to um, the the first one. Debbie Africa. For Debbie Africa, freedom. Debbie Africa is one of a group called the Move Nine, survivors of the August 8, 1978 police attack on Move in Philadelphia. From that day to less than a week ago, Debbie has been in a cell serving out an outrageous 30 to 100 year prison sentence one of seven surviving MOVE members. And like other MOVE members, she served 10 years over her minimum term before release on parole. Upon her release in comments published by The Guardian of London, she remarked on two MOVE sisters who were not granted parole, Janine and Janet Africa. Debbie said, having to leave them was hard. I was torn up inside because, of course, I want to come home, but I want them to come with me. I was in shock when it didn't happen that way. When Debbie was first arrested, she was eight months pregnant, and in September 1978, she gave birth to a healthy baby boy, Michael Africa Jr., fed by her sisters who smuggled food from the mess hall. She spent three days with her son before it was discovered she gave birth when the two were immediately separated. 
Mike Jr. tells of the first night living with his mother. He knocked on her bedroom door, and when she told him to come in, she was standing there barefoot. He looked down at her feet and realized it was the first time in his life that he had seen his mother's feet. His friend Benny told him that two-year-old babies and infants knew more about their mothers than he, a man almost 40 years old. But the story is Debbie Africa, after 40 years behind bars, is free. May freedom come swiftly for the rest of the MOVE survivors of August 8, 1978. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Paradox of Liberty. Lest we forget, this chapter is about the great white Aryan Anglo-Saxon civilization's commitment to follow the sun, civilize the world, and help all the unfortunate savages find Jesus. One of those civilizing Anglos was, of course, Thomas Jefferson. In fact, the Smithsonian installed an exhibit dedicated to the greatest gentleman slave owner of the United States, entitled Slavery at Jefferson's Monticello, Paradox of Liberty. Author Leah Caldwell writes after visiting the exhibit, It doesn't bode well that if you enter the Jefferson exhibit not knowing what slavery was, you might come out thinking it was an intensive training program for highly skilled craftsmen. Nevertheless, Edward Rothstein's review in the New York Times is a classic example of the establishment's fourth estate protecting the status quo, sit down, don't rock the boat, when he actually criticizes the exhibit for stating that Jefferson's Declaration of Independence did not extend life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to African Americans, Native Americans, indentured servants, or women. Rothstein wrote that this pushed too far and that each of those cases needs different qualifications and examinations. They distract from the subject. In his autobiography, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, the great social reformer remembers his first thoughts regarding his condition. In fact, his reflections on his own experiences offer an appropriate response to Jefferson's cheerleaders. Why am I a slave? Why are some people slaves and others masters? Was there ever a time when this was not so? How did the relation commence? Once engaged in the inquiry, I was not very long in finding out the true solutions of the matter. It was not color, but crime, not God, but man, that afforded the true explanation of the existence of slavery, nor was I long in finding out another important truth, viz. what man can make, man can unmake. Here's another answer for those who like to contextualize about those masters who own, subjugate, and crush other human beings. It's never been considered okay to own another soul, unless, of course, you're modeling yourself after Satan. Remember, this wasn't during the lower Paleolithic period. It was during the so-called Age of Enlightenment, 
In his essay, Jefferson's Crime, Not Mitigated by the Standards of Time, journalism professor Robert Jensen frames Jefferson's blameworthiness. Certainly Jefferson was familiar with pain and the arguments against slavery. Certainly Jefferson was aware of the existence of the idea that all humans had an equal claim to liberty and the argument that Africans should be considered human in these matters. Certainly, there were many different ideas about the institution of slavery and racism in play at the time. So we're not judging Jefferson by the standards of our time when we point out the way in which he employed racism to justify the barbarism of slavery. We are acknowledging that others in Jefferson's time, including such notable figures as Paine, articulated anti-slavery and anti-racist principles at the same time that Jefferson was, in 1781, writing in his notes on the state of Virginia about the natural inferiority of blacks. Discussing the night side of Jefferson's legacy in the radio documentary American Icons, Monticello, American artist Myra Kalman suggests, if you want to understand this country, and what it means to be optimistic and tragic and wrong and courageous, you need to go to Monticello. Tragic and wrong, for sure. Monticello. Jefferson's neoclassical Virginia brick villa stoically perches above 5,000 acres of rolling green hills, his plantation once tended to by hundreds of African slaves. From Jefferson's divine resting place, vistas stretch forever, and the Blue Ridge Mountains loom to the west. Monticello is a popular tourist attraction, where Jefferson's slavery component is, for the most part, whitewashed down the hillside, where it flows to the Ravana River, which connects to the James River, past other sprawling Virginia estates that should rightly be categorized as America's colonial terrorist camps, also known as plantations. It's as if we've been erased, observed one African-American visitor. The iconic architectural element of Monticello is the dome structure that towers above all else on his celestial home. Many believe that dome to be nothing more than a stately aesthetic element, but factoring in Jefferson's obsession with African slaves actual testimony from his slaves, and an architectural concept called panopticon, a darker, more deviant purpose emerges. Quote Bob Dylan, all along the watchtower, princes kept the view, while all the women came and went, barefoot servants too. Lucia Cinder Stanton, Monticello's senior historian, envisions Monticello as a panopticon with Jefferson the all-seeing at the top. He could see everything that was going on. Jefferson's library contained a copy of a book called Panopticon that outlined a new and controversial prison design that called for circular cells surrounding a central watchtower. Inmates would be unaware if they were being observed. At least two former slaves talk about Jefferson with his telescope, watching enslaved people at work, Stanton reports. So this whole concept of surveillance from his 
central place on the apex of the mountain came through the oral tradition. He could see out, but nobody could see in. Equipped with his telescope, this wart in a powdered wig would gaze down from his heavenly dome, tracking his enslaved labor force on Mulberry Row or in the fields or wherever forced labor took them. The enlightened Jefferson kept meticulous records of almost everything associated with his life. Two subjects stand out, vegetables and slaves. Novelist and Professor Jamaica Kincaid with regard to lettuce, cabbage, carrots, cucumbers, and peas. The garden book has details of the things he planted, the food he planted, but it looks as if it just falls magically at the table. So he'll say, peas were planted. Six weeks later, peas appear at the table. There's no involvement of labor. There's no soil at all. It's as if it's eaten. It doesn't have any evil in it. But when it comes to the checklist of Negroes owned, as calculated by Jefferson, Kincaid says, the farm book, on the other hand, is all evil. Very similar to his book about peas, corn, beets, and other vegetables, the farm book is a painstaking record of the human beings Jefferson owned. Betty, Martin, Senia, Critter, Sally, Johnny, Daniel, Molly, and so forth. Sinister? Yes. Evil? Absolutely. More fairy tales about America's founders? Of course. Here's how the Monticello website heralds the bullshit. Monticello was home not only to the Jefferson family, but to workers, black and white, enslaved and free. Workers? Jesus Christ. American bullshit runs deep. Jefferson historian Joseph Ellis underlines Monticello Tom's warped sense of his Teutonic responsibility. Jefferson argued that one of the reasons that he couldn't free his slaves was that once freed, the blacks would intermarry with the whites and would dilute the pure Anglo-Saxon race. Well, he's fathering children by Sally Hemings, and some of them look almost purely white. And again, you get a Faulknerian scene. He's eating dinner, and he's being served by a slave who happens to be his own son. You've been listening to excerpts from Murder Incorporated, Empire, Genocide, Manifest Destiny, Dreaming of Empire, Book One. It's written by Mumia Abu-Jamal and Stephen Vittoria. So that was a few commentaries by Mumia Abu-Jamal. Um,